There are parts of the Bible that are hard. There are some parts that are very hard to understand. Passages like Mark chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Peter 3. In fact, we're in good company. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter says there are parts of Paul's writings that are very hard to understand. There are parts of the Bible that are hard in that they are hard to read. If you're ever on the roster and you see that it's Numbers 26 that week, that's the week to swap with someone else. Right? It's one of those passages that's just names after names after names. Today's passage is a hard passage. It's not hard to understand. There's a couple of intriguing things, but really it's straightforward. It's not really that hard to read. There's a couple of names, Uzziah, Terebinth. But it is hard to accept. It's a hard passage to hear. It's confronting, disturbing. It will unsettle us. It will make us uncomfortable. It is a passage that challenges us as it shows us a vision of a holy God. And it challenges our very vision and identity of ourselves. So as we begin, would you join with me? Let's pray. Let's ask God that he would make this a passage that though it is hard, one that we can hear. Heavenly Father, your word cuts us to the heart at times and so today we ask please that you would give us eyes that can see, that you would give us ears that can hear, that you would soften our hearts such that we might turn to you and be healed. We ask this in Jesus. Amen. Our passage begins by setting us some context. If you've got it handy, Isaiah chapter 6, page 668 in the Pew Bibles. And the context is this, Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw a vision. The context is the king of Judah has died. The throne is empty. Maybe it had been moved into the temple, preparation for the coronation of the next king who's going to come. And as Isaiah ponders the fact that the throne is empty, he sees, well, he sees this. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. As Isaiah ponders the empty throne of Judah, he sees that in fact the throne isn't empty. It never was. The one who has always been seated on the throne, the Lord, is still on his throne, high and exalted above all other rulers. The Lord lives. Such is his glory that just the train of his robe fills the temple. I can picture the coronation of the next king going to come in, all the nobles and the priests and the pomp and the splendour, but he's a little king seated on a little throne. This king is so big that just the train of his robe fills the temple. And Isaiah, as it turns out, sees a little bit more than even he realises. In John chapter 12, when John quotes this passage, he tells us that the one Isaiah saw was none other than Jesus. It's the glory of Jesus that he sees. It is the Lord Jesus seated on his throne. And so there is the Lord high and mighty and the heavenly beings are around him and above him. In verse 2, above him were seraphs, some sort of fiery maybe heavenly creature. Each of these had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. 
with two they were flying. Creatures of, of real majesty and power in their own right and yet such is the one that is before them that they're not worthy to look at him and so they cover their eyes. Unworthy to be seen and so they cover themselves. Yet swift to fly and do his bidding. And such is the majesty, such is the power, such is the awesomeness of this one seated on the throne that these heavenly beings as they fly around, they praise him, calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Majestic beings who praise the Lord. I wonder what word you thought of to describe God. Big, I heard someone. I mean, maybe you cheated and you went with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus describes God. Loving, kind, merciful, powerful, the ruler, the creator, sustainer. In the presence of this raw, unfiltered, direct vision of Jesus, the only word that these beings can use, holy, and they have to repeat it, holy, holy is the Lord. It's almost like language hits its limits here. The one seated on his throne, he's, he's so other, so different, so separate, so pure, so perfect. Here is the one who dwells in inapproachable light. Jesus in majesty. Isaiah, he doesn't see the, the nice, the kind, the loving, the, the gentle Jesus, the, the bearded hipster Jesus who wants you, right? He's, he's kind of the good teacher and you can sit at his feet and he's just, he's, he's nice and he's safe, he's tame. Isaiah sees dazzling power, pure perfection, holiness. It's a little bit like, well, you, you could think of Jesus as a campfire, right? It's nice, it's friendly, you can sit around it, toast some marshmallows, have a good time, make some memories, walk away and it doesn't really matter. Isaiah doesn't see that, Jesus. He sees the refiner's flame, white hot, brought before gold. It burns away anything impure. That is the Jesus that he sees. And he responds, well, <laughs> Verse 5, all he can say is, woe to me. Woe to me, I am ruined. Isaiah sees the Lord in his holiness and he knows himself to be unholy, to be impure, to be unclean. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Just his lips are enough to condemn him. There is nothing in himself or in the religion of the people around him that would give him any confidence to stand before the Holy God. All he can say is, I am ruined. Such is the holiness of God. Such is his splendor and glory, his perfection and purity, that when humanity comes before him, all we can say is, woe to me. This is our dear. 
that God is good and we are wicked. That God is holy and we are unholy. Now we might not have Isaiah's ministry, we might not be prophets in the way that he is. That experience isn't open to us. But the experience of meeting God is. To meet Jesus is to know ourselves to be sinners. Coming face to face with God brings awareness of our own personal need. It's hard. It's hard. It seems like every day we meet more people whether they're outside the church or even inside the church, who think that they're basically okay, that they're, that they're good enough, that if they were to come in front of this holy God, they could stand before him. You know, we, we compare ourselves to each other. We look around and we go, well, I, I don't murder. That guy murders. I'm better than him. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I'm not a terrorist. I haven't abandoned my wife. I'm not abusive to my kids. I'm basically all right. I'm okay. I'm good. But as Isaiah, we cannot meet the holy Jesus without being aware that in fact that is not true. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard because I'm such a good liar. Because I'm so good at covering up my own sin. I mask it. I pretend that I'm okay. I mean, I'm a minister, right? I I do the things a minister does. I preach, I read the Bible, I pray with people, I help them out day to day, I do good. Isn't that what ministers do? Surely I'm a good person. I've got a lovely family, a beautiful, godly wife and kids who mostly obey me, right? I mean, it's what more do you want? I don't swear, I don't get drunk, I pay my taxes. Surely, surely I'm a good... And so I lie to myself. You're doing great, bud, I say. I mask my sin. Of course I mask it from you, right? We're middle class. That's what we do. We don't show each other our sin. But in fact, I'm such a good liar. I'm such a fool that I pretend to myself. You know, all all I have to do for myself, I don't know what it is for you, all I have to do for me is look at how little I pray. And that shows me that it's a mask. That in fact... I am my own idol, that I am a sinner. Can you imagine for a moment, imagine having lived the perfect life, not once having lied, not even a little white lie, not once having spoken a word in anger, not once having had lustful thoughts, not once having cheated, not once having dishonoured God. Now clearly that's not us, right? That's not me. I'm pretty sure it's not you. And yet all of those things, all they are is symptoms. They're not even the real problem. They show us that we are sinful. That each one of us has that same underlying corruption. God is good and we are not. And to meet Jesus is to be exposed like Isaiah. To know I cannot stand before a holy God. Now, maybe you're sitting there and in fact you're thinking, well, this this isn't my experience at all, David. I I don't really know what you're talking about, right? 
that's not my vision of God, that's not my idea of myself. I'm, I'm, I am a good person and well, that's, that's not God who you're describing. And perhaps even me just talking about it is a bit embarrassing to you. If that's you, then I can only say, and, and I say it respectfully, that you don't know God. For knowledge of God always, always brings with it awareness of our own personal needs. Awareness of sin. I told you it's a hard passage. Isaiah had a vision of a holy God. And it was a vision that led him to say, Woe is me, for I am ruined. All he could expect was destruction. I mean, the Old Testament is full of stories of people who walk into the presence of God in an unworthy manner and are instantly struck down dead. I don't know what Isaiah was expecting. He sees the next thing that happens in verse 6 is one of the seraphs flies to him with a live coal in his hands taken from the altar with tongs. This, this heavenly being of fire has to pick up this coal with tongs rather than touch it and he brings it towards Isaiah. And What's he expecting? It's going to be placed on his head and it will consume him? Instead, he gets to experience sin forgiven. As this seraph brings the coal to him, With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. That which came from the altar paid for Isaiah's sin. He deserved destruction and he knew it. I'm ruined. I'm done for, he says. But instead, God extended mercy and forgiveness. Isaiah had knowledge of God that led to awareness of his own sin and instead of resulting in destruction, it resulted in the gift of God of forgiveness and cleansing. He didn't ask to be forgiven. The seraph came from God, brought the coal and cleansed him. I tell you, it's a pattern that continues today. We don't quite have the same living coal and heavenly beings that kind of come and burn your lips, right? That's not available to us. But in fact, that's been replaced by something even better. The Lord seated on the throne, that one that Isaiah saw, he sacrificed himself such that for us, knowledge of God bringing awareness of sin may result in forgiveness. Do you know this? Do you have knowledge of God that results in you being aware of your own sin? Have you met the holy God, such that you know that you stand lost before him in desperate need of a saviour. That on our own merits, on my own merits, on yours, all we can say is woe is me, for I too am lost. This too is hard to hear in its own way. It's hard to hear that salvation comes from God and not of myself. I'm my own idol. I lie to myself all the time and the lie goes something like this. David, you can do anything. And we teach it to our kids these days. it's, It's the air we breathe. You can do anything, including pull yourself up enough to stand before a holy God. We don't like to be told that we can't do it. But when I see myself 
before the holy God, when I know my own sin, all I can do, all we can do, is throw ourselves on God's mercy. It's hard, but it's wonderful. Because God is merciful. God does forgive. God does deal with sin. The king on the throne stepped down into humanity to be crucified that he might die in our place. The coal that came from the altar replaced by the Lord himself. His blood poured out that we might be cleansed. Raised to new life, the king still reigns but now extends mercy and forgiveness. I, sinner that I am, need saving. Do you? Isaiah has a vision of a holy God. He experiences sin forgiven. And then God commissions him to his ministry. Now we could stop at verse 8 and it would be quite a nice ending actually. It would be, it'd be, it'd be nice. We'd, we'd finish on a happy note, right? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Fantastic. It's, it's a nice change of pace really. Do you remember what Moses said when God came to Moses and said, You're going to be my prophet? He said, Ah, oh, would you mind sending my brother? He's a bit better at this than I am. Do you remember what Jeremiah said when God came and said, Jeremiah, you're going to be my prophet. Jeremiah said, Oh, can you wait till I grow up a bit? I'm, I'm still young. I can't talk. Just give me a few more years. Do you remember what Jonah did when God said, Will you be my prophet? What did Jonah do? Hopped on a boat, went the other way, right? It's got eaten by fish. That's right. Here am I. Send me. Isaiah, experiencing the forgiveness of sins, stands up and says, send me. And it would be a lovely place to end. We, we, could, we could talk about being willing in ministry, being prepared to stand up when the, the time comes, when God calls us to go and speak his word and say, here am I, send me. But we need to see the kind of ministry that God sends Isaiah on. In fact, God commissions Isaiah to a ministry of rejection. God said to me, go and tell this people, hear but don't hear, see but don't see. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes, otherwise they might see and hear and understand and turn and be healed. Isn't that the opposite? of what we expect God to say. I mean, this is maybe the hardest part of the passage. Where's, where's the God who desires all people to be saved? The God who so loved the world that he gave his... How, how can he send this message? Hear but don't hear, see but don't see, otherwise you might come back and be healed. We can't even consign it to the Old Testament and say, well, God was being grumpy back then, and then New Testament, he became happy, and we can't do that. All four of the Gospels quote this passage. And Acts does as well. We, we read it, as it turns out, coincidentally, in Mark chapter 4. How's that for God's timing, right? We're just reading through Mark, and we hit Mark chapter 4 this week. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about the parables, and they say, why do you teach him parables? Can't, can't you just tell it to us plainly? And he says... 
Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the hearts of these people calloused. He says, I preach in parables so that those who are outside the kingdom of God will remain there. But, there is a but, to you, disciples, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom. Human eyes that see this message, human ears that hear it, only ever results in condemnation. The gospel, this message of mercy and grace, is the stench of death to those who are perishing. To see, to hear, to understand is in fact a gift of God. It is given to those to whom he wants to give it. And sometimes he chooses not to. It's hard. I'll tell you what it should do. It should lead us to pray. Pray for ourselves. Pray that God would give us ears and eyes and hearts that are soft. Pray that God would be kind enough to gift us the secrets of the kingdom. Prayer for those that we share the gospel with. If they are perishing and God doesn't change them, that they may hear the gospel, all it will do is drive them further away. We must pray. We're going to launch uh, our 316441 cards again next week. Uh, I'll tell you more about them then. Uh, they're, they're a mechanism for us to remember to pray for the people that we are sharing the gospel with. We must pray. And secondly, I don't think it's out of this world to expect that as we share the gospel, we will encounter opposition. We will encounter people for whom the gospel is the stench of death, whose eyes are closed and ears are shut, and who will reject the message. Now we're going to commission Jason tonight. Uh, brother, I pray that this isn't the commissioning that you're going to get. That, uh, that you're not going to be told, go and preach, but no one's going to listen. And yet, that is in God's hands. And so we pray, asking him. As we preach, those who reject the word, well, the word hasn't failed in its purposes. It saves those whom God desires and it condemns others. And I've I got to finish by asking the question, why? I, I got to this point and went, why would God possibly do that? Why is it this way? I think the answer is in the chapter before, Isaiah chapter 5. Now, if you're, if you're reading along, uh, let me recommend that we're doing highlights, right? So Sunday to Sunday, we're kind of going to skip a whole bunch of chapters. So it's well worth reading along in between each chapter. We probably should publish which chapters we're going to do so you know to read up to them. Um, we're going over a couple of months, right? 66 chapters in Isaiah, a chapter a day. You will pretty much get you there. Isaiah 5 and verse 15. Why would it possibly be that God would do this? So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. The eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice. The holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. 
We will only be able to accept this word when we know God is holy. And such is his holiness that sin and sinners deserve his wrath. It only makes sense if you have seen the Lord Almighty who is holy, holy, holy. Have you met Jesus? Have you had such knowledge of God that has resulted in the awareness of your own sin? Such that you have thrown yourself before him and said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Pleading with him for mercy. The surprise isn't that God condemns. For he's holy and we are not. The miracle is that any of us are saved. Isaiah had this vision of a holy God. It resulted in his awareness of his own sin. And throughout the rest of the book, we will see the vision that is given him of the hope that's going to come in the future. That's a hope that he could only see a little bit of. Right at the very end of our passages, he asks for how long, O Lord? Well, the holy seed will be the stump. I will destroy Israel, but something will remain. Some hope will come. I hope that for us is now reality in Jesus. Mercy is there. Forgiveness is to be found. Sin dealt with. A holy God made approachable. Eternity with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this this is hard. Hard to hear, hard to accept. And so, Father, we need you to change us, that we would see with your eyes, that we would hear with your ears, that we would have soft hearts, that we would know you to be the holy, holy, holy God you are. We would know ourselves to be unholy before you. Father, thank you that you have provided the sacrifice, no longer a coal on an altar, but your Son, the Lord Jesus, died in our place, that our unholiness might be taken away, that we might have his perfection. Father, we thank you for that and we praise you. Make us people of prayer. Knowing this truth, may we agonise in prayer for those that we evangelise. And Father, when opposition comes and people reject our message, help us to keep trusting you, that you are good, that you are pure, that you are holy. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, we're going to sing.